other. Thank you. Um, you may be seated. That doesn't mean I have any control over that. But So I'm just wondering, there's a guy who has a shirt on that looks just like this. He's supposed to be coming in and uh, preaching, but I guess, I guess we're just going to wait here patiently and uh, see what happens. Actually, they, t- they tipped the cards forward in first service today by doing this. And uh, go, go for it. What do he, you got there, bud? What he, do you got there? He blushed in the first service. <laughs> we have something here that belongs to you. And uh, yes, your wife was complicit. Yes, she was. She hid it from you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. until we could uh, have a chance to come present it to you. We figured since you're not going to go attend commencement, we would bring commencement to you. Uh-huh. So for those of you... For those of you that do not know Dr. Judy Deal, uh, she and I are partners in crime. We both have our PhDs in New Testament. And uh, so we schemed up this idea to come out here and surprise and embarrass Mark and work the first service. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He had no idea it was coming. And uh, what I have here is your diploma, and uh, I'm going to read it to you. And uh, Denver Seminary, it's from Denver Seminary. Oh, that's good. That's... That's where I've been doing all the work for the last several years. I'm glad that that's good. Denver Seminary has conferred on Mark Stephen Hill the degree of Master of Divinity with all the rights and just thereunto appertaining. In witness thereof, this diploma is granted in the signatures of the Chairman of the Board of Trustees. The President of the Seminary and the Dean are hereunto affixed. Issued by the Board of Trustees upon recommendation of the Faculty of Denver Seminary in the State of Colorado, on this 11th day of December, 2017. December 11th, didn't you finish in the 18th? Yeah, I was still working on the 11th. Yeah, that's right. I hadn't finished yet. And that's called faith. <laughs> Signed by Mark Young, President, Randy McFarland, Provost and Dean, and Judd Burnham, Chairman of the Board of Trustees. All three are friends of ours. And uh, this is yours. Thank you. Yay! You finally get to keep it. Graduations. I asked Jenny, Go ahead. Okay, I asked Jenny, uh, is there any way you can get this and Mark would never know that it's there? And she goes, he doesn't even know where the mailbox is. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, so, no. <laughs> Go ahead. Graduations, I think, are just a wonderful celebratory day. Um, you know, as, as people, as instructors, as professors, as teachers, it's always wonderful to see your students up there on the stage and you think, oh, Finally, I never thought he would make it, but see, not not him, my students, my oh, yeah, students. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it is. I a, thought that about him. Yeah. <laughs> Graduation is um, it's just it's just really one of my favorite times ever. A, a very great and godly man graduated this week. The Reverend Dr. Billy Graham graduated yes. from this life to the next, and in the same way, Mark has accomplished so much. Um, he really is going from this life to the next life as a person who is, is serving the Lord and doing what God has called him to do. So we're really, really proud of Mark, and we're proud of what he has accomplished. Yeah. 
You know, Judy and I were talking, when we put on these gowns, uh, a lot of people think of it in terms of a little bit of significance or prestige or arrogance, but the reality is what that symbolizes to us is that we have committed our lives to be faithful to the Lord. Uh, we know the uh, what you had to go through, the work, the sweat, the money, <laughs> the cost. And so you just don't pick up degrees along the way. And so it's a real humbling process to to put this on because it just reminds us that we've committed our lives, right? And uh, you have too. And now you have a job of impressing all these people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) We're proud of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. So I'd like... um, I'd like all the staff that's here, elders, past and present, seminary graduates. Uh, in the first service, we had uh, uh, Patty Wolf. She's actually on the board of trustees of Denver Seminary, so she was here. And those of you that have had any kind of career as a faculty member, come on up. So come on down. We're going to pray for you. Judy, Judy's going to pray for you. So come on up. And It's no easy feat to do this. It's even a harder feat to commit your life to faithfulness. What a crowd. This is awesome. Isn't it great? It is. Father God, we just come before you with hearts filled with gratitude and pride for our brother who has committed his life to serving you. We're so happy. Um, We're grateful for all the times that you got him through, the challenges, the frustrations. God, thank you for being at his side. Never leave his side, Lord. Always be with him. And we know that you will do that. Just bless him as he goes forward into his future, and we just ask that you would just be with him and his family and with Jen all the way through um, whatever the future has in store. So I, I quote the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, exceedingly more than you can ever ask or think, according to his power, at work in your life, be glory unto him, not only Jesus Christ, but also in the church, for generation to generation, now and forevermore. Amen. 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 Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, so kiddos, stand. You'll get one of these. You start with high school, okay? And then it, then you go to keep moving. moving. So that's what happens. But in the meantime, go learn some things. Walk out that way towards your class. Your teachers are... I'm keeping this this time. <laughs> You're keeping it this time? Yeah. I wouldn't let him keep it after the first service. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you that have, uh, you get to experience something unusual as I'm preaching in my regalia today. Uh, that's not very common, but it is actually a little bit of work to get it all off. So I'm preaching in it. For those, uh, for those of you that have never seen that or seen uh, doctoral regalia, 
as, as little as 100 years ago, many, many pastors, especially in the big cities, preached in regalia for several reasons. One is, uh, when it's cold, it actually keeps you warm. <laughs> There's a real legitimate reason. That's why many academics over in Britain still do it. Uh, but another reason is because it reminds us, and it should remind you of our commitment and faithfulness to the Lord. Everything about this is symbolic. Uh, very much as they think about the, the priests, what they wore in the Old Testament. Not trying to equate us to an Old Testament priest, but everything had symbolism. So the colors, the blue, for instance, shows you that it's a doctrine of philosophy. You saw Judy's blue is here, and mine's here. The red symbolizes theology, and if you look carefully along the hair, you'll see purple along the edge of mine. Uh, that was the, set, the colors of Dallas Seminary, symbolizing royalty that we serve the King Jesus. And so everything has significance. And so whenever we put this on, it, it's just a reminder of our commitment to the Lord and our commitment to you to be faithful. I love this word and I've devoted my life to studying it and figuring it out. So you get to see me preaching it today. So we, uh, we're going to start with prayer. Tim and Marie Wood were here in the first service. Uh, we're grateful. For those of you that do not know, Marie was just recently diagnosed with uh, very severe and advanced cancer. And she actually looked really great. And the medicine is working. It's responding. And they have a new medication that she's on. And uh, they're here from, their part-timers are here from Ohio. So we stopped and prayed. We're going to pray for her right now. So, Father, we, we have so many things that we could lift up to you every single week. But uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to lift up Tim and Marie. Thank you that they were here, that she felt good enough to come back out. And thank you for the big smile on her face, Lord. Uh, the smile of feeling your presence and your uh, grace and, and the feeling the effects of the medicine that's working. So, Lord, our prayer for her as for, as for some of the others, um, by your grace, we don't have a ton. But for some of the others that have had severe and significant cancer, our prayer, Lord, is very simple. Uh, just leave her alone. Just leave her here. Okay? Uh, we need her more than you do. I understand that to die is gain, to be with you. But to be here is much better. And we have watched their faithfulness over the years. You know, just year after year of, of uh, being faithful and gracious and bringing people to you. And Lord, uh, you don't need her that much. You get her for all of eternity. So leave her here with us. We don't care how you do it. We'll let you make that decision. We just pray that you would heal her. Thank you for the privilege of praying to you. Thanks for being a God who cares and a God who listens and a God who loves to bless. Help us today, Lord, as we uh, jump into your text and look a little bit more at um, who you are and the way you've made us and what Lent is all about. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So you prayed the Lord's Prayer. And one of the phrases in there is uh, we're praying for the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that imagery appears all throughout the New Testament. We've brought that up several times. In the last series, um, we answered the question. Well, we raised the question. We didn't answer any of them. What went wrong? And we, we asked the big questions that the Old Testament was asking and left us with a big question mark. And um, that the Jewish people were trying to figure out at the time of Christ. And quite honestly, it took the church a long time to answer these questions and to make sense of them. It was not an easy process. Some cancers got answered very quickly. Others took 
a long time, several hundred years to develop the words, the wording that would describe the Trinity, which is still complex and hard for us to understand. In many African nations, they don't have a word for person. And so when you talk about the Trinity, if you're not careful, you communicate that God is three human beings. It's the only word they have, which is not true. It took the church a long time to wrestle through that and make sense of it. So we raised several big questions, what went wrong, so that we could answer some of them during Lent. Now, let me remind you what the purpose of Lent is. This is the second Sunday of Lent. The purpose of Lent is to prepare you for Easter. That's it. It's to prepare you for Easter. We do a variety of things. We want to prepare you for Easter through prayer. I would encourage you to be praying a lot during this time. Through what the ancients called mortifying the flesh. Love that language. You're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinfulness. Every time you successfully avoid sin, you have just done that. And, and we're going to see in a little while, when Christ talks about taking up the cross daily, that means something. That means something to us as Christians. We're very interested in repentance of sins during the six weeks heading up to Easter. We'll give you points of time along the way to stop and repent. And let me encourage you throughout the week to develop an attitude of repentance. It's okay to say to the Lord, uh, I'm so sorry for what I did. I've prayed many times in my lifetime. Uh, I'm so sorry, Lord, that it took a baseball bat to get my attention and to humble me. Because it did. Uh, more than one, actually. And um, maybe I'm learning humility, although I suspect I'm not yet. Um, and it's okay to have a repentant heart. Just a heart that's humble and soft before the Lord. Uh, self-denial, that's another part of the Lent season, the Lenten season. But not just simply self-denial for the sake of self-denial. Self-denial through the process of focusing on the cross. You see, the cross is central in our theology. It is the key that unlocks all of these questions and helps to make sense of them. Everything changed on that Friday at 6 p.m. Everything. Everything in world history changed. And so if we can keep your focus and your gaze looking at Jesus and the cross, then it begins to move away from our own self. And so self-denial is another part of it. So that's what we're doing here in Lent is to prepare you for, um, for Easter. Last week, we looked at the restoration of our vocation. Remember, one of, the, one of the problems we found is that sin so destructive, one of the things that destroyed was our vocation. And our vocation is to be true humans and steward all of creation. Let us make humans in our image, Genesis one twenty six, so that they may rule over, you fill in all the blanks in those passages, basically creation, we may serve each other. And we gave that up. We abandoned it. We walked away from it. So last week we ended with, how did he restore our vocation? He did it by creating a kingdom of priests. That's what we are, a royal priesthood. The word royal comes from the word kingdom or to reign, the verb form. So we're not just priesthood. We are a reigning priesthood. We reign with Christ right now. The moment I say you're a priest... What you should do is not go look in the mirror. A priest is never a priest on their own behalf. What you should do when I say you're a priest is begin to look around and say, who am I a priest on behalf of? You're a priest on behalf of each other, your friends and neighbors, the world, your enemies. Your enemies. I finished last week and said that if the Lord wanted to take the most vile person on the earth, 
and give him a taste of what Christianity is about, the best thing he could do is to route that person into one of your lives. Kind of a different way of looking at enemies, isn't it? We don't want our enemies in our lives. Yes, we do. How else are they going to taste to get a glimpse of what true Christianity is about? And so the best gift God can give that person is to route that person into one of your lives. That's what we're here for. We are a kingdom of priests. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5. We are to look at people differently. Everybody knows the verse. If anybody's in Christ, they are a new creature, part of the new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The verse right before it that begins the paragraph is that we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. Although we used to evaluate Christ that way, he says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. So think about the people here. We tend to define each other by our focus, our sin, the things that we don't like about each other. I know who some of you complainers are. Thank you for your emails, by the way. I know who some of you, I could fill in the blank because I've had coffee with you. And I have resolved not to define you that way, not to let your sin be the defining characteristic of who you are. We no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. So I'm always looking at you from the standpoint of what are you doing for the kingdom? What does that look like? And that's how we should define each other. The key is that behind all of this that makes it all possible, and we're going to come back to this, is that our sins have been forgiven. That's the core of everything that changed the world history. I'm going to read to you Galatians chapter 3. I did not read this last week, but it's the first that you've all heard. Chapter 3, verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Here's the gospel. If you want the gospel in one sentence, one idea, here it is. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the gospel. We serve the one true living God who loves this entire creation, every nation, every human on the planet. Every human. That's the God that we serve. He announced that gospel ahead of time. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law uh, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise. That's the gospel. God loves us. That's it. That's the restoration of our vocation. We are God's instruments to reveal his kingdom to a broken world. You've heard me say many times, there's no billboard out there. God is glorious. There's no plane with a banner flying behind it. No, we're it. We're the ones that reveal it. So when you have an enemy coming your way, somebody you really just don't like, remember that that's a real honor. God has just done something fantastic to get them in front of you. Because I just got back from Maine, and I was uh, sitting at a restaurant of uh, one of the, the women that goes to the church. She owns a restaurant, so my friend and I, we always go there and have dinner when I'm out there. Her daughter comes up, and she says, uh, I'm an atheist. I said, sweet, I love atheists. 
She goes, actually, I'm not. I'm an agnostic. I said, ooh, I love agnostics even better. And she goes, actually, I'm not any of those. I'm just not a Christian. I said, ah, now we're talking. Why aren't you a Christian? And all of a sudden, her mom's just sitting there grinning. And uh, she was working in the back kitchen. And, and so she had to go back to work. And mom said, no, no, no. Our mom owns the restaurant. Her mom says, no, 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 no. You stay here and talk. I'm going to go do the dishes. <laughs> and we talked for a half hour. It was fantastic. It was just, and when I got ready to leave, she walked up and she said, you're the first person to explain to me uh, the truth about Jesus in a way that makes sense. And just gave me a hug. She said, uh, uh, when are you coming back? <laughs> right? We proclaim the truth. We have the words of life, Peter says. And we should tell people about that. That is the restoration of our vocation. The cross got rid of uh, the roadblock between the divine promises of God and the nation for whom those promises were intended. There was enmity there, and, he, and the cross got rid of it. The cross is central to what we believe. God always intended, always planned on developing communities of reconciled believers within whom the Spirit moved who would then reach the rest of the world. He envisioned these little fellowships, spirit-filled fellowships all over the world to reach the world. We have more power than the president of any country, than any military, when we live out our faith. We are to be peacemakers. We are to love our enemies. We are to show the world what genuine love actually looks like. Our vocation as humans has been restored. We steward these people by sharing the love of Christ with them. So today I want to talk about the restoration of worship. Now for many of you, worship is defined as this right here. And I get it. Not that it's a piece of it. Uh, some of you will expand that a little bit and say, well, the sermon's part of worship too. Um, some of you without understanding why. Uh, and the reason is because we're tasting of the goodness of the Lord whenever we jump into his text. Well, you know what? Pretty soon we're going to take an offering and that's part of worship as well. It's the chance to say, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me resources so that I can be a blessing to others. And then we serve communion and it's your chance to come look in the eyes of Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Everything we do here is worship, but worship is far bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. I argued in the last series that the destructiveness and sin, including the loss of worship, and here's what that looked like. We looked at Romans 1. Here's God, and he makes creation, and he puts us right here to steward all of creation. And we did the opposite. We began to make images, icons in the form of animals, and anything in creation, we formed idols is what we did. And we worshiped them instead of God. And that destroyed everything. The, by the way, we still do that today. It's just not in the form of little animals. Um, we worship significance, money, sex, power. We find lots of other things to replace it. And so anytime we place anything in the created order above the creator himself, we just committed idolatry and we're all guilty of it, by the way, every one of us. Because that's what we naturally know. It's really hard not to do that. And the life of Christ is learning how not to do that. Learning how to turn to Christ. God is known through the things that he made. 
He built us that way. Creation serves two purposes for us to enjoy and to teach us, teach us about who he is. Uh, the heavens declare, shouts the glory of God. That's why we get to enjoy an eternity on the earth, because it tells us things about him. And not just the earth, but all of creation, all of it out there is designed to teach us about him. He makes himself known through the things that he has made. And we are to honor him and express gratitude and praise, not to worship the things that he has made. So the beginning part in the discussion of worship is recognizing and proclaiming who God is and focusing on him. But in order for us to truly be able to worship God, we had to be brought back from exile to the true temple series. Uh, This involved the forgiveness of sin. This is the major theme throughout the book of Acts. You see, when the Jews were deported, Deuteronomy 30 and all of the prophets, 28, 29, 30, and all the prophets made it clear. The reason why you're being deported is because of your sin. All right. After so many years, he brought them back from exile, but they recognized that they weren't truly back from exile because even though they rebuilt the temple, the glory of the Lord never appeared. Never reappeared in the temple. So they recognized that they were still in their sins, still stuck, if you will. And so the whole core of our theology, of Christian theology, the cross is the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to read some passages out of Acts, Acts, and I think they'll be up on the screen. This is Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. There it is. So that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 5. Verse 30. Peter standing before the Sanhedrin. The leadership of Israel. He says, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. This thread is woven all throughout the New Testament. Forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Acts 10, verse 43. Now he's standing before Cornelius, a Gentile. This is when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. This is Peter talking. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There it is. Forgiveness of sins through his name. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, this is Acts 13, Paul standing at Pisidian Antioch, preaching to people. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sins. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from most sin. Is that what it says? From what? Every sin. Every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. It doesn't matter how good you are. You couldn't get to forgiveness. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who even does good, not even one. There is no one who seeks for God together we have all fallen. It's Romans 3. 
And so this is the message. This is the core of Christianity. Our sins have been forgiven. Is that a good message? All sins, past, present, and future. Sins you haven't even committed yet. They're already forgiven. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, forgive one another as Christ Jesus has already forgiven you. Already. It's done. This is what allowed the exile to come to an end. The true exile. Because the sins had to be forgiven. That's why the Israelites were kicked out of the land. What they did not realize was that that was a picture of the entire world. That was a picture of the entire world. We all live in exile from God. And so for the genuine exile to end, sins had to be forgiven. And the gospel is the announcement of that new reality. It involved a new exodus, if you will. It's interesting. I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is standing there and he's transfigured. Some, I think most of you know the story. As he's praying, his changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem, his death. The word departure is the Greek word exodus. They spoke about his exodus. There is a new exodus with Jesus. That's the argument of Romans 6, 7, and 8. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer under the, uh, the master of sin. You have been set free. That's all language right out of the Exodus imagery, out of the Exodus story. You have been set free from the master called sin. So Jesus Christ came, forgave sins, ended the exile, and led us as Christians into a new exodus, the true exodus out from underneath sin. Your sins have been forgiven. That is the very core of our theology. Is that good news? You have a Savior. His name is Jesus. You can rest. He's done the work. Well, this new reality also involves bringing you new covenant. Hebrews talks about that. If once we have a new high priest who's no longer of the order of Aaron, we need a new ministry and a new covenant. The new covenant. We're about to celebrate that in just a minute with communion. This blood is the new covenant. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. We have a new way of relating. A new way of relating, the Holy Spirit. But this new reality also involves being a new Passover. In 1 Corinthians 10, as he's introducing 1 Corinthians 11, he says Jesus is our Passover. So another thing we're going to celebrate in just a minute with communion is that God has truly, completely, finally passed over all sins. Jesus is a new Passover. Some of this language we're going to come back and talk about later in the series. It involved the return of God's glory. God's glory has returned to the, king, uh, to the temple. John says, we beheld his glory. The wedding of Cana. This was the first miracle by which Jesus revealed his glory. Guess what? The glory of the Lord returned with Jesus. That's how big the cross is. It involved the creation of a new temple. We're going to talk about that later, a spiritual temple. No longer do we have a temple in Jerusalem. We have a different type of temple. It involves the restoration of the kingdom. All these things we're going to be talking about. We are the citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom is alive and well. It is entirely a new reality. 
We are the spirit-filled people that all of the Old Testament look forward to. That's how important the cross is. That's what happened on that Friday at 6 p.m. All these things happened. We were, we were the start of the new world, the new creation. Now, let me give you just a picture of the ancient world to help you understand how these first century Christians would have grasped it. In the ancient world, everything was ruled by the dynamic of shame and honor. Okay, shame and honor is a very simple principle. That is that if you hurt my family, I am bound and obligated by the principles of honor to take vengeance on you, to get even. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was the world system. That's the way the entire world thought. Everybody was dominated by this dynamic called shame and honor. If you shamed me, then I was bound to defend my honor or I would become subservient to you. That's how the Roman Empire established levels of control uh, and power that weren't always military. So I'm way up here and I decide to do a favor to you. You are now bound from that moment on to show loyalty to me. Fidelity. Because I now have power over you. Does that make sense? That's how they could establish such a control network throughout the whole world, even without military presence. Because the moment I did something for you, you're now bound to me. That was called loyalty. It's the Greek word pistis, which means faithfulness. It's part of our language and our culture. When Christ, um, let me back up, to show loyalty to someone who was shamed implied disloyalty to the one who was showing honor. So if I give you something and one of you decides to, and you reject it and you decide to show honor to them, you're being disloyal to me. I have power over you all of a sudden. Okay, when I was teaching in India uh, a few years ago, I, I was trying to create, they, they still operate from the same principle of honor and shame. And I was trying to talk about uh, what shame and offense actually looks like. So I was staying at the uh, president's house and the president was translating for me. And I said, so as an example, um, the, my point that I wanted to make was give up on offense. Quit being offended. Let go of shame and honor. Don't shame anybody. Don't. God never shames people. And then you have all kinds of people talking to you about Christ. So I was explaining this and I said, so in your culture, for example, I sit down to eat and the family all lines the walls and I eat by myself. When I'm done, I leave and then the family sits down. I said, uh, in my culture, that would be very offensive. And the, and the president stopped. He didn't translate. He just stood there looking at the students. And I said, are you going to translate it? And he said, no. And I said, why is that? And he looked at me and he said, you're staying in my home. Have I dishonored you? The moment I say yes, I have power over him. He is now obligated, obligated to restore honor. And I said, will you trust me and translate? And he said, no. I need to know first that I have not dishonored you. I said, you have not dishonored me. And he very carefully translated and all the students go, <gasps> because what I said was, because they, they treated me differently, that was dishonoring and, and, and shameful to me, I had now had power over the entire family. And they were obligated to resolve that. See how that works? That's the way it worked in the ancient world. 
And uh, shame and honor controlled everything. So to honor the one who was shamed implies disloyalty to the one who is honoring. When Christ was crucified, the state made a public political declaration that he was shamed. Because you see, crucifixion was designed, first of all, it's reserved for the poor people, the slaves, the poor, and the hardened criminals. The wealthy never were crucified. If they were executed, it was through decapitation, so it's fast. And the crucifixion was designed to rob you of your human dignity. Starts out with they strip you naked, and you're hanging on a cross in front of the public with no clothes on. They rob you of your dignity. Then they create all kinds of pain and torture on purpose. They are turning you from a human into a thing. That's the goal. After you died, they would leave you hanging on the cross. We have stories of crosses all around, all around uh, the Roman Empire. They'd leave you hanging on the cross until you began to decay. The vultures would come and eat you, and eventually your skeleton would collapse, and then they'd reuse the cross. The whole point of it was to shame you into no non-humanity and to rob you of your honor and your dignity. When Christ was crucified, the state made a public declaration that he was shamed. Publicly humiliated, he was a thing left for the vultures. To show loyalty to the crucified had strong political ramifications. Because if you showed loyalty to the one crucified, you're making a statement, a rebellious, seditious statement that the Roman Empire was wrong. And that meant trouble and would probably cost you your life as well. Thus, to proclaim Christ as crucified meant problems. No wonder they hid after the crucifixion. They had been shamed. To proclaim a crucified Christ is the start of something brand new, but it comes with a cost. That's why the resurrection was so critical in the first century world. You had to be absolutely certain before you risked your life to say, I believe in this Jesus who was crucified. That's why all the New Testament authors, John says, our hands touched him. We beheld him with our eyes. We ate with him. You cannot take that away from us. He rose from the dead. Completely redefined the shame and honor system. Rehumanized Jesus because the Roman Empire dehumanized him by crucifixion. They rehumanized him through the resurrection. You had to be absolutely convinced before you would say Jesus is Lord. Because that was rebellious and seditious. You're supposed to say Caesar is Lord. So the beginning of genuine worship is to learn to take up this cross, this willingness to be shamed on a daily basis. Luke 9.23 If you're not willing to take up your cross daily, either Jesus' words, you cannot be my disciple. Is it hard to be a Christian? Yes, it is. A genuine one. Yes, it is. It involves a deep gratitude for what Christ has done for us. It involves a deep level of commitment that what he did was an act of sacrificial love, and I am grateful for that, and that I am willing to experience the shame that goes with it. It involves a deep sense of sacrifice and commitment to others. This is the beginning of genuine worship.
and read to you, still in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Again, verses that you've heard before. For through the law, Paul says, I died to the law. I died to the law. The Greek tense here is that it's done, it's completed. It's over. I am not dying to the law. I died to the law. Same thing he says in Romans 6. So that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Different Greek tense here. What he's saying here is that the the benefits and the ongoing repercussion of crucifixion is still here. I have been and am continued to be crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And you cannot take that away from me. Because I saw the risen Lord Jesus. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the beginning of genuine worship, is genuine praise of gratitude for what Christ did, to experience that level of humiliation and shame, which we're about to do at communion. The kingdom, in some sense, has already come. We're living out the kingdom daily. But there's another sense in which it'll come in a much more fulfilling way when we get rid of all the corruption and greed and politicians who are idiots and don't know what they're doing and would rather protect themselves. I don't care which side of the fence you're on. It doesn't matter to me. That will be taken care of in the future. But the kingdom is here now through us. A picture of true and genuine worship occurs in Acts 2. This is at the right after Pentecost. Same chapter, Acts 2. Just explain what happened. The Holy Spirit came. Boom. Thousands of people turned to Christ. And here's what happened. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Now remember, this is Pentecost, so people from all over the world had gathered. Millions of Jews in the city at this point in time. They all gathered together. They sold their property, possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They did this daily. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to close with this. Genuine worship is far bigger than this. What we do here on Sunday morning is a time to get together and recalibrate and refresh because it's been a tough week for most of you. We, ought to, we need to hang a sign on the wall that says, now that you have been refreshed, go out and live out your faith. Go out and live a crucified life. Go out and pick up your cross now. It's out in the foyer. And carry it with you. So imagine this just for a moment. Imagine a world, our world, where we declare the powerful things that God has done to one another. On the way back, the last flight, I was back from Maine, coming back yesterday, the last flight. I had plans for that flight, but the guy next to me was drinking, started drinking, and was a little rough around the edges. I finally looked at him and said, are you okay? And his eyes filled with tears, and he said, no, I just came from burying my dad. And I said, I am so sorry. And he said, thank you. He said, my dad died 30 years ago, and I still cry. He goes, you do? I said, yeah. Uh, my first wife died 34 years ago, and I still cry. He said, you do? I said, yeah. He goes, I don't even know what to think or what to do. 
My dad was a Christian. I don't even know what that means. So we talked about grieving and talked about Christ for the whole flight. He probably gave me eight hugs when I got off the airplane. (laughs) Declaring the powerful things that God has done. Telling each other the truth about how good God is. Because he is good. Imagine a world where we focus throughout the week upon the teaching of the apostles. We do here on Sunday. But what about during the week? You ever just pick up the Bible, pick up your phone and read a verse? I have a guy whose ministry to me is every day he sends me a verse to read. Every day. I love it. He's done it for about eight years now. He just sends me a verse. I read it. I read and I study and I meditate. Sometimes it makes me mad. Sometimes it confuses me. Sometimes I scratch my head and say, who on earth is this God that I'm serving? Other times I read it and I think, how could I ever doubt? But it's the story of a God who loves this whole creation. Imagine a world where, where this is part of our daily dis- togetherness, discussing it. Imagine sharing a common life and sacrificing for each other so that none of us, none of us have needs right here. We love each other so much we're willing to take care of each other's needs. Imagine breaking bread with fellow believers on a daily basis. I have a friend, whenever I go see him, he immediately pulls out the bread and celebrate Christ together. He's done that for 35 years. Sweet. Imagine that. Imagine praying daily for each other. Marie said, when I first saw Marie, I saw her out there and she has the cancer, and I walked up to her, and I said, Marie, it's so good to see you. She said, I am so encouraged by your prayers. I've been listening to the sermons. You've been praying for me every week. We have been. And a whole bunch of people have sent her cards. Thank you for that. Imagine a world where we just pray for each other. This is what true worship looks like. We actually leave here to go out and practice true worship. We do. It occurs all week long. Father, thank you for your goodness. Your kindness, your love, your generosity, your greatness. Thank you for loving us so deeply, so well. Thanks for, um, just thanks for making it possible for us to be here. We truly are grateful people. Help us to learn to worship you all the time, not just part of the time. In your son's name, amen. Can I ask the ushers to come take the offering? I mentioned that uh, it's not just put money in the plate. It's an act of worship. It's a time to say, God, thank you for making this possible. Your love is devoted Like a ring of solid gold Like a vow that is tested Covenant of hope, your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon. With mercy for today, faithful you have been, faithful you will be. Just pledge yourself to me, and that's why I sing. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will 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 ever be
ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. When we celebrate communion, all of these things come together in just this one act. The new covenant, the Trinity. We're celebrating the death of Christ, right? We're celebrating the new covenant. That's the sending of the Spirit. Who sent them both? The Father. We're celebrating the Trinity. We're celebrating sacrifice. We're celebrating something in common that we share. We're celebrating relationship. All these things come together. So the act of celebrating communion is itself an act of worship. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you forward to uh, celebrate.